So this will be part of a little series where I'll ask writers as many as I can or the mysterious questions that don't really need or probably don't have answers, which is uh, what they think in the end writing is beyond ideas of academia and journalism, its purpose and its mystery. I want to begin by saying something that, you know, there are writers you admire and there's people you admire. Uh, but I'm very proud of our friendship. So much so, I'm always a bit worried you'll finally... Cop on. Cop on, find something <laughs> about me that you really don't like, and then, then it's all over. But, yeah. you know, that adds a real spice to the... Because we only yeah. met very accidentally. Uh, yeah, and quite recently as well, bizarrely, considering small country and we live in a small world, the, yeah. the, the, the world of literature, in a small country we only met, really. Oh, we can't, is it eight years ago, maybe? We don't remember because we're too old. Yeah, on a ferry in uh, Sydney. Yes. So we had to go all that distance to finally uh, have a on, chat. On the boat to Manly. Yes. Named, yeah. they say, because they saw a man standing up on the headland. And, and they called this island Manly. Oh, an Aboriginal idea. person. Mm -hmm. So we were, in a, in a sense, Aboriginal persons heading for Manly. <laughs> Very <No>. confusing, no. <laughs> you, you don't agree with Just that? Just a couple of tourists heading up for Manly. Yes. But what are we to make of being Irish? I don't know. We are, well, I mean, you're younger than me, it has to be said. Just a bit. Yeah, I'm much more handsome and everything, but we're a little <laughs> bit, we're, be, we're becoming the same age. Isn't that what it That's is? That's it, yeah, 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 because as you get older, the gap yes. is irrelevant. As the cloak of decrepitude comes down, yeah. you're, you're being squeezed into the same space. But what, what do you, because we were asked, we were doing an event with um, yeah. Tom Keneally, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and we were asked, being asked what, what it was, what, what we thought about Ireland, because it was up shit creek at the time. Yeah. And we said, we did our best. And I said I didn't want to speak ill of my country. Got a round of applause, but I actually didn't. Mm -hmm. But but we are the pa the calf returns to where it got the milk. But what what do you th what do we think about being Irish? I mean, what is Irish? Well, it's it's not a solid thought. It changes all the time. I mean, ten years ago, the answer would have been different because you know the economy had collapsed. We felt very isolated. It was before the two referenda that make us feel brilliant. You know, so. Um, it changes all the time, and who knows after tomorrow, you know, and Brexit and the re-emergence of a border, what we'll be saying in five years' time or three years or ten years' time. So that's one of the interesting things. Presumably, if, I was, uh, if we were English and we were, you know, in a library in uh, Manchester, we'd, we could have the same conversation. What is it to be English? So it's one of the interesting things, really, because uh, I find when I'm writing, it's not an adjective, Irish that you can just put no. down yeah. and safely consign it because it has it carry it drags endless amount of adjectives with it perhaps. It's a sort of a distressed child of an actor, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It was lovely when it began when it started out. When would that be now? Well I'm trying to think. That's a fair while Maybe, ago. Maybe yeah, four thousand years yeah. ago. But it carries a lot of baggage. The first day was good when they came yeah. uh, on the I was going to say the the coracles and the Mayflower. No, it carries a lot of baggage, but I think mm. part of our job 
and other people is to ignore a lot of the baggage yeah. and not worry about it. So well, I tend to. When you to were a child, hmm. what did you did you have an, any idea of Irishness? It came through my parents, really. A lot of it came through. Uh, uh, say, I was eight for the 1966 50th anniversary of uh, of, uh, of um, 1916. My mother played Countess Markovitch. On there the you television. go. There you go. Mine didn't. Shocking. Yeah. She watched it. <laughs> and the thing was that it was amazing. It was brilliant. of vivid memories of going into school the day after. Oh, yeah. And instead of playing cowboys and Indians in the yard, we were playing us and them. Wow. You know, and we were us, the good people, and they were them. The Brits were the baddies. Yeah. But the English, you know, it was very much a, a good versus evil um, see, my story. family's a bit confused about that. Yeah, no, we ours wasn't, you see. No. And both sides of my family, my parents, would have uh, come from Republican backgrounds, yeah. really, and um, well, one of my grandfathers yeah. did, but the other, the other didn't. Yeah, now the, the proclamation, my father framed it himself and oh. uh, put it up. It was up and still is, although the house is now empty for until it's sold. It's still in the hall. The proclamation of independence that he put up there in 1966. One of my questions, because this is an inquiry in some way. I mean, a loving and rather stupid inquiry. Uh, by a person who has been working, writing for 40 years, and um, maybe a little more now. And, and yet, in all honesty, and maybe it's a good thing, I have no idea what it is we do mm. or what it's for. Mm. And um, one of the questions in relation to that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's framed facetiously, is it all the mammy's fault? <laughs> And indeed, for all my complex relationship with my mother, when I was four months old, she did put a pencil in my hand, how I held it, I'm not clear. And she said, draw or write, whichever you like. Now, they were her instructions to me. Four months, did you say? Yes, well, this is, she's... Said this, this is the, yeah, brilliant. Um, and I know, I mean... This would have been before you could hold up your own head. It, it just about. Uh, <laughs> although maybe I had a kind of... Realization that to be a writer, you better acquire some false pride. So maybe <laughs> I held my head earlier than most. Um, but and you've written in a, in a unique way about your parents. Mm. I mean, such a book by me would be a slightly different volume. <laughs> but how, how much of this? How much of you? I mean, if we if we can't put our faith in religion, if we can't put our faith in faithful things, how much of you is engendered? Not only obviously given life by your mother, but your, what you are engendered by your mother? A good bit of it, I suspect. My father is in there in the mix as well, you know. They both loved language. They oh, both brilliant. loved talking and listening, and they were both great mimics, and they both got great fun. I remember my father would laugh out loud, or my mother, something, a, a, a line in a novel I'd read, or a line in an article. It wasn't just that it was funny, it was the phrasing and stuff like that. And they. And, I, and quite early on, I began to get it. We all did at home. You got, and some of those phrases have, you know, lived on after my parents were both dead, you know. Mm. But I was in school quite a while, quite content, and I hadn't learned a thing. And it was my mother realized I couldn't read. Yeah. And she taught me to read using comic books. Wow. And I have vivid memories of it, sitting with her and putting my finger under each word. And yeah. eventually, I can't remember which word it was, yes. but I knew the word. Do you know what age would you have been? Could have been seven, I think. Yes. Maybe you know, I was older than I should have been. Do you know Colin is the same Colin to be? No, I didn't realize. I was that. the same. All right, that's interesting. And I learned off the English comics. 
Yeah. The English comics. Yeah. I don't think there were Irish comics. Oh, about five years ago, I was in Dundee and I was turning a corner and there was a big bronze statue of Desperate Dan. I nearly wept because... We know him well. He taught me how to read. Yeah, with his chin and... <laughs> and his cow pie. And there was a little statue of Minnie the Minx beside him and she was great as well. And the Beano with the fellas, the... Yeah, they all came The Brainiacs. From, they all came they from called? DC Thompson Comics. I didn't realise, based in Dundee. Who didn't... And DC Thompson didn't employ Catholics. Whoa. So Desperate Dan was a parod. Wasted. Desperate Dan was a parod. But anyway... Um, oh, this is shattering. Yeah. But yes, interesting too, because I married a Protestant. So, yeah, all so, right, anyway, so did I. So, uh, <laughs> so we both so, yeah, married mother, Protestants and both learned to read off the English comics. Yeah. Now, can I just say from my grandfather, who was the revolutionary, uh, I had come back from London unable to read and possibly write, if I'm honest. Did I you was, go able to? Did you lose? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a no, long I, I weekend. I'd been to the London County Council School and I just couldn't get They even gave me the prettiest girl in the class to try and teach me, but it's, that didn't work. So they knew I was a hopeless case. And I came back and I used to stay with my grandfather, whom, of course, I adored, probably in, in, in the way you adored your parents. Um, and uh, he was a painter and he was teaching me how to paint. But, but he didn't like the thought of me even having been in England. He didn't like the thought of England. He didn't like the idea of England, even though he had been trained himself at Goldsmith as a painter uh, under a scholarship with Sean O'Sullivan. But he didn't like that idea. And with the fact that I would go in to the, the little shop in Morehampton, in, in um, Donnybrook, and buy English comics horrified him. <laughs> but truly, that's where... Because I had understood uh, dialogue as coming out of people's mouths yeah. anyway as a child. Yeah, and the bubbles make yeah. complete sense. The and weren't we bubbles. living, weren't we connoisseurs of those structures before we even saw them? You mm -hmm. know, we knew what they were, mm -hmm. and they were our bag. And you could have taught us to read a little earlier if you'd just cottoned on to the Beano and the Dandy. I suspect so, yeah. And how yeah. embedded they all were in the Second World War. Yeah. You were Victor. Which was yeah. all text. Yeah. Which was Captain for Hurricane. And all Maggot that. Malone. Yeah. His faithful Batman. See, what does that mean to us? <laughs> we, we talk about Cucullin, and they tried to tell us at school, the priests, that, you know, Cucullin well, and the Fianna, but they weren't really our. I, I kind of. I kind of blessed. If I was to feel blessed in some ways, I, feel, I do feel blessed that I was born in Dublin, mm. like Garrison Town. Mm. English names for a lot of people, Henry, you know. Mm. Uh, English surnames all around the place, and then um, the proximity to Britain. It's not, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it was actually a complicating thing. It mm. was a crossroads in many, many ways between Ireland and Britain. And I think um, my father grew up in Talla, in County Dublin, and he knew nothing about soccer, nothing, until he started work as an apprentice in Dublin City. And there were guys around him talking about Bowes and Rovers and Manchester United and the teams across the water. He knew absolutely nothing about it yeah. when he, until I think it was 1939 when he started his apprenticeship. Whereas I grew up with English football mm. and English magazines and English, to Tell largely English, again? Chelsea. Chelsea, yeah. uh, English, um, you put me off my stride there. Sorry, right? sorry, sorry. English music, yes. you know. And that conflict between Ireland and England was in my head all the time. And it was one side of me being told, one side of my world being telling me that 
uh, all this English stuff was suspect and wrong, and the yeah. other side of me telling me when I was a teenager, no, this is all great. Yes. It's all brilliant. Well, it was a And in the middle was the English language. And it was a yes, and when we went as immigrants to London, as my parents did, more or less, although he was finding work as an architect, and she is an actress, so it was a little bit different. Uh, it was the, the exodus of the, of the lower middle classes. You know, it's a different story. But, um, I mean, not only do we speak the language, but uh, I remember vividly at, at school having a friend who was Chinese, a friend who was from Nigeria, a friend who was from India, and realizing that we had all come from some strange margin of this world. And you, it is complicated, the whole English thing, but at the same time, it was an immense re refuge. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you were to itemize, I mean, I would say Joseph Conrad, of course, not exactly English either, but, and Thomas Hardy, profoundly English, would be my two main avatars. Or I mean, if you had to identify two, you mentioned Dickens. Van O'Brien. Well, if they were English, Dickens. Because uh, Dickens has been kind of lurking there since I was a child and still is. And yeah. I, uh, a recent addition to my desk is a small bronze bust of Dickens. Wow. That I, I, got, I just decided I, I wanted to, uh, I don't know, sentimental of course, but because uh, a bit like Chelsea, football brings me right back to when I was a child and so does Dickens really. So um, Dickens is a big, big name. And the energy in, Dick, in Dickens. Ah, yeah, and I mean, the, the story, I've read several biographies of him, and some of them, yeah. I mean, such a hard-working man, and I think that's really, that yeah. never gets a look in, you know, really, yeah. in a lot of biographies of writers. It's all who they met, well, very who driven they slept man. with, really driven. Because I've been to Gads Hill, and he mm. used to walk regularly out from yeah. London home. Yeah. It's a long, long way. Yeah, yeah. And he'd walk through the countryside at night. Yeah. Um, with his dogs when everyone yeah. was asleep, and of this powerful, yeah. but also abandoning Catherine. Oh yeah, I mean, so he's a complicated man as well. And old know. at fifty-seven. And his, his, the life of his children wasn't exactly a no. barrel of laughs as far no. as I can make no. out. But there was one. Well, they loved he, him when he was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when he was writing *Grace Expectation*, he was a, a terrible pain down the side of his face. And the story is that when he put down the last full stop, it stopped. Mm. And whether it's literally true or not, it struck me as being, I don't know, important somehow. Not mm -hmm. necessarily that we have to be in physical pain as we write. No. But, uh, you don't do it because it's a way of filling the day, or you don't do it because oh, no. it's a bit of crack. Okay. You know? And the other, I suppose, the other real. Going back to when I was a teenager, Flann O'Brien and the discovery yeah. that the, the Dublin accent and Dublin, granted written by a man who wasn't from Dublin but immersed himself in the place, was there in book. It was before I read any of Joyce, for example. Mm. And Flann O'Brien was very much a group activity, bunch of us, 15 and 16. Mm. In a way, I don't want to be too neat and tidy, but discovering Flann O'Brien and Guinness mm. and that world at the same time, mm. you know and just realizing that the Dublin accent presented on the page could mm. be hilariously funny, and part of the hilarity was recognizing it as your own, and realizing that I'd been listening to people like this all my life, and here they were making me laugh. Mm. 
And that's what was unique about you. I mean, well, I remember vividly going into Hannah's and the, the first edition, was it King Farouk? Or yeah. Of, of the Commitments yeah. was at the back of the shop in, the, in that, it was a mixture of um, a pogromized area almost <laughs> where the Irish writers had been left yeah. to, to defend, defend for themselves at yeah. the back of Hannah's. The real books, the English novels, were all on tables. But we, we were people, and you, one had a dream of being um, included in that ghetto of Irish writers. And y y your book was there. And when you, when you opened it to look at it, it was this. It was quite sparsely printed, as I remember. And uh, it wasn't crowded pa pages. And there was a lot of, of your distinctive dialogue, mm -hmm. which almost seemed like um, you had decided to notate birdsong. Um, <laughs> what the question is of human beings, uh, how, I mean, you say Flann O'Brien, and I suppose he was in the, on, riding on the wind of experiment, or, mm. or, or thinking he was, or, or that was a very important part of Beckett and Joyce, obviously, and, to be a writer at a certain point, like Aidan Higgins, was so afflicted almost by the requirement to be, to be, you know, in that way. What, what accommodation did you feel you needed to reach with that tradition, that experimental tradition? Because um, you I seem fearless to me. Well, I wasn't overly. Uh, it's a bit like the Irish thing. You you you, you kind of shove it to the side while you're working. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit, yeah, it's a pain in the arse sometimes, isn't it, when you're described as an Irish writer as opposed to a yeah. writer, as well, if that carries began, a certain rules and things. Mm. And, you know, I wouldn't lose sleep about it, but uh, as for experimenting, I remember vividly, I was like, describing something, and I said to myself when I was writing, why am I describing this? It has no place whatsoever in the story, it's just in the way. So I ditched it and just started getting the characters talking and it struck me that really an important part of the reading, the joy of reading, is reading down the page as much as across the page, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that down the page, a bit like Jennifer Johnson, you know the way you oh, can yes. recognise a Jennifer, Jennifer Johnson oh, page, so. you know? And uh, so that's where I was going when I was writing The Commitments, that I write, that the story goes down the page Actually, in that particular book, more so than across the page, if that makes sense. Yes, I did. did that. But I knew that I was doing something that really, I suppose, if I, in the absence of description, I was going to have to make the dialogue pretty vivid. And I did an awful lot of experimenting mm. to make sure that I could, the compromises, the rules that I set myself, and in some ways now I've really abandoned. I'm not as obsessed about them as I used to be, and I was half mm. thinking I'd go back to them because. Um, uh, to keep myself, uh, I don't know, alert. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the rules I made about deliberately misspelling words and adding, you know, taking away G's at the end of sentences and adding, you know, adding uh, an N to anyway, you know, A-N-N-Y-W-A-Y -N -N -Y yeah. spells anyway, yeah. so that it would be read as it sounds in that particular sentence. A lot of these rules I made up as I went along, and I, I to be honest, I, I was making them up, but I wasn't aware whether there was anybody else in another bed sit anywhere making them up, or whether anybody else had made them up. 
reasonably well read, but I was 27 or something like that. So there's only so many books you could read in that time. And I'd read Joyce, I'd read Flann O'Brien, I'd read a bit of Beckett, I'd read a lot of um, American writers. Um, the decision to use dashes instead of the more formal uh, punctuation, I suppose, came from French. I liked the shape of it when I was doing French in school. Uh -huh. I liked the way the dialogue was presented on the page. Mm. Uh, and I was aware, for example, that in, say, Ulysses, um, Joyce didn't bother with any at all. It's up to yourself to make it out and to decide when the, uh, the dialogue ends and the prose starts again. So yeah. I just thought, well, fair enough, I'll just give that dash. And also, to be honest, it was when I started typing it out. I wasn't, uh, you know, very, yeah. very slow with the typing. Well, it has a, uh, sometimes if you're attentive enough to your own work, it, it's making decisions for you that you have to follow mm. rather than the other way around. Yeah. It's putting you under frigyasa to, to be obedient to what it wants to be itself. Mm -hmm. I think that's what you achieved. We were also told by the example of Flann O'Brien and Patrick Kavanagh and all those geezers sitting in MacDade's drinking six, you know, having sixpence in their pocket when they came in, mm. having no money whatsoever, mm. that somehow or other, first of all, making your living wouldn't be possible. Mm. possible. And secondly, there was something suspect about that. And there was this old adage that if, a, if, you had a, if, if your book was being read by a lot of people, it couldn't be any good. Yes. Because all the good books were these rare, you know, things like Ulysses, who's, I mean, yeah. are there 10 living people in Ireland who have got through Ulysses? I sometimes <laughs> I wonder, but yet it is the great book. Mm -hmm. But somehow, I think our generation, to some degree, maybe by accident, I mean, I'm proud to say that I, you know, our house comes directly from my books and yeah, my yeah. children's education and the, the chops yeah. I put into them. Mm. comes in that magical yeah. way from yeah. books. And this is what we did. Yeah, we're lucky. Uh, and we brought up our kids. Yeah. And, and we did put nappies on them. Yeah. You know, and, and we, did, we did take instruction from our wives how to be fuller human beings maybe as well. Maybe we weren't. Well, uh, in my case, uh, you, were, you, were, you were complete when you arrived. I was. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, but, but no, it's right. And um, yeah, there was the whole you know, seven people who read it, read it, it must be a masterpiece. Mm. I mean, I have read Ulysses twice, and it is a masterpiece, it's not a, but yes. uh, that snobbery, yeah. that idea that, you know, we should sneer at people who create something that just happens to be popular. Mm. I'm not sure if it's still there to the same extent, but it was there when I was starting out, and I remember, you know, somebody describing my work as popular, as if there was a smell off it. Yeah, that's it. And I never really allowed myself, I never really allowed that to get under my skin. No. I just thought it was, in a way, childish. Yeah. And it reminded me of uh, the attitude I would have had and my friends would have had towards music when we were teenagers. If something was commercial, it was shite. Mm. And it was only years later that you realised that maybe the number one hit was a brilliant piece of music, mm. really brilliant three-minute song. And it, you probably felt it in your bones, but not in your head. And it was only later on you loosened up a bit and realized, Jesus, that's brilliant. Yeah. So that connection between success, figures, and the quality of what you do, you know, that they, the less you sell, the better it must be. I'm sure it gives comfort to some people, but it's mm. bullshit, really. Well, you so have to have uh, the courage of your yeah. own culture and your own... 
yeah. what you are and your own yeah. achievement. Well, again, I thought, you know, the first four novels I wrote, I was teaching, you know, Paddy Clark, which has been the, you know, the, the one that's, I suppose, over the years, put food on the table, so to speak, and uh, more so than any of the others, I think. Uh, I was a teacher when I wrote that. Mm. I wasn't a full-time writer, mm. and I didn't allow myself to mm. think, this is the work of an amateur, because I'm a teacher, therefore I can't possibly be a writer. And uh, this, uh, my career won't really take, going, take off as a writer until I give up teaching. I never, that, it was time really that, drew, that right. decided me, I, must, I have to give See, up the teaching, because I didn't have time for both anymore. This is, this is the, it's not the problem exactly, but this is the issue for me, we say writing. And, and of course, people get a bit frightened when you talk, talk about storytelling, mm. like that's a lesser oh, yeah. occupation, which I don't think it is. No, I don't either. Um, and, and we're writers. And of course, writing is such a recent invention. We, I mean, Homer obviously did without writing as mm -hmm. such. You have somebody to remember it. Or even Shakespeare's plays had to be remembered by actors and then mm. transcribed from what they were saying, which mm -hmm. I think is a very interesting thing. And obviously we are a strange creature. We're only 200,000 years old, apparently. It's very recent. I mean, that's nothing on the scale of time, is it? Mm -hmm. we, here we are, we just arrived like this, this unnecessary addition to the, the cornucopia of life. And we were hominids and we were all sorts of things maybe for millions of years before, but the thing we are. So here we are, uh, they talk about the importance of writers, they put them on statues. That if you're lucky, they buy your book and, and you, you make a story. But what in the name of the godless heavens are we doing? What is it? Well, Roddy, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old. Well, I need to know. I, I don't know really what it is that this we is do. It. We just try to assemble all these words and to tell a story in a way that nobody else perhaps has told it in. You know, I wouldn't be obsessed about has this story been told before because no. actually I'm working because on it my, has. Yeah, I'm working on my twelfth novel and it's myself. I, I, it's my past work that keeps nibbling away at me, thinking, "Oh, you've done this before. You've done this before. You've done this before." And it, you know, so it's it. Far from getting easier, it's getting harder, I think, to come up with new things, not just a new story, that's not really relevant, a new way of telling the story. Uh, one of the great things about being a writer and getting older, as a human being, you'd rather not in a way, but actually it's, 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 and it's, it, it, it's not a guilt-free thought either, but it is material, uh, you know. Yeah. The death of loved ones is material. Yes. Not necessarily, you know, well, it's biographical, it's raw. The, the music of what happened. The, you know, hauling your grief around, the challenge to describe that, the challenge mm. to do something with it. Mm. You know, as a case in point, um, I'm working on a novel which ends in the hospice. Mm. And it ends in the hospice because I spent time in the hospice early last year when my mother was dying. Mm. And it's nothing to do with my mother's death wow. whatsoever. But it struck me nothing and everything then. Yeah, it wouldn't have occurred to me if I hadn't been in the room mm. or in the building mm. and the strange magic that goes on in that building, the St. Francis Hospice in mm -hmm. Rohini. And it's, it just struck me as I was writing this novel, which I started and wrote really quickly quite soon after my mother died. There's two men, lifelong friends, and there's an explosion on the way and it just struck me to 
avoid the explosion if they go to the hospice. Hmm. Uh, I won't say anymore. No. But um, <laughs> it's not a guilt-free idea either because, I mean, I was there with my siblings, so what right have I got to... But the characters aren't observing the death of their mother. So it's using the experience of life, getting older. Yeah, um, but you know, guilt might be, you know, yeah. the way they fold air into yeah. puddings. I do find guilt, getting guilt older, might be the air and the getting older and decrepit, yeah. when you put it in writing, it can be very, very funny. Yeah. And contrasting things as they used to be without the cranky old man stuff can be very, very funny. And, and it can be uh, exhilarating in a way that a lot, of, a lot of other elements of getting older can never be. Well, you're hitting the ball out of the park still, that's the thing. I, I want to say, just in closing, I just want to record for, you know, for 30 years' time when neither <laughs> of us are around or 40. Uh, again, how much I value knowing you. Oh, in, thank in you. Many well, it's mutual. And, and it's been a big treat, actually, to, to, to add you to my list of friends. And, and uh, in context of today, this temporal moment, Thank you, thank you for not knowing so beautifully. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Thank you. Hmm.